So if you have a Bible, uh, please open up to Acts chapter 6. Uh, if you're using the Bible under your chair, it's page 594. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love it if you took that Bible uh, and you could have it and dive into it. But we are diving back into the book of Acts tonight, and we are looking at the earliest followers of Christ and how they gave their lives away because of Jesus. Uh, we have taken an extended break from the book of Acts. We started this back in the year of 2016, okay, way back in 2016. Some of you probably don't even remember that. But back in 2016, the world was a different place, you know. Facebook Live was just taken off. Um, we had a president who wasn't a former celebrity, okay. Bomber jackets were cool, right, or starting to become cool, I think. Uh, Angelina and Brad were still together, okay. Ryan Lotke was a respected U.S. swimmer. <laughs> Pokemon Go was somehow still a popular thing. Ken Bone was a celebrity, remember that guy? Really cool. And the mannequin challenge was still cool, okay? 2016, way back, good old, thousand, good old 2016, right? So, well, today, we are jumping back in, okay? But I don't want you to feel as if we're jumping backwards into the book of Acts. No, in a sense, I want you to feel like we're jumping forwards. Really, I'm serious. Because Acts is a book that always points us forward. It's telling this amazing story. It's showing us about the movement of God in the world, okay? And so it's, it's really pointing us forward. And so we're in Acts chapter 6, and we come to this story about this man named Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr. And then from that, we're going to see the beginnings of the spread of Jesus' people into different parts of the world. Uh, just for the sake of context, this is actually really important. Uh, just consider what's happening here at this point in Christianity, in this part of the world, okay? Because at this point in our story, the, this huge movement has taken off. All the Christians are still gathered in Jerusalem. They haven't left Jerusalem yet. That's, Jesus said, be my witnesses in first Jerusalem. So they're all still there. And Jerusalem is a city that probably has at the most 40,000 people. And from what we can tell, there are about 10,000 new Christians living in Jerusalem. That's 25% of the population converted to Christ nearly overnight. Okay, so radical things are happening. And now we know, if you read the rest of this book, it's going to spread throughout the entire world, and we are uh, recipients of that, even here tonight. So the question is, why is this happening? How is this happening? I mean, how does that happen to a city or a place? Well, there's a noted history professor at Yale named Kenneth Scott LaTourette, and his quote will be here on the screen uh, Greg will put that up. He said this about this time in the world. He says, Never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. He says other, mo uh, other movements in the world have always happened by way of conquest or through politics, but Christianity in this early period wasn't happening because of that. In such a prominent place like Jerusalem, there is something unique and something powerful happening. God is on the move, and we must ask, how? How is that happening? Why is that happening? Well, I think the answer to that question is found in part in our story tonight, in the person, in the example that we see in the life of Stephen. See, tonight's text shows us that Stephen was a man that was filled up in order to be poured out. 
And it's people like him who created and God used to start this movement in this world, in this part of the world. So in response to that, I want us to consider tonight what this means for us to be people even in Corvallis who are filled up and what a life that is poured out looks like. What it means for us to be people who are filled up and poured out here in a city like ours. So Stephen was an awesome man, okay? He was a, an example of great faith, okay? What made Stephen so special? What was it that made him so special, that made him so memorable, that, that his life would be a life that we're talking about tonight? What made him so awesome, you could say? Well, it might not be for the reasons that you might think. People in this day and age, when, if they were to say, you know, if you were to go and ask them, like, why is Stephen so special? What makes Stephen so great? They probably weren't saying, like, oh, man, Stephen is so great because he's so funny. I just love Stephen. He's so funny. Or, oh, Stephen's so great because he's got such great style. And have you seen the things that that guy wears? And he's, he's a cool dude. Or, oh, Stephen's so great. I mean, have you, have you balled it up with Stephen on the court? I mean, or have you, uh, have you seen him play guitar? Or have you seen his, his photography or something? Stevens, he's a great guy. Not you, Steven. Sorry. You're shaking your head, I know. Or, oh, Steven's so great. He's got such a good eye for things. Or, oh, Steven's so great. He's the nicest person I know. Or, oh, Steven's so great. He's so easy to hang out with. He's a guy you can go on a road trip with and you just never get annoyed by. Or, oh, Steven's so great. He's just so smart. You know, he's, he's, he's the good kind of smart. You know, he's the humble guy, but he kind of knows everything, right? But that's, that's maybe a grid through which we might view the world or view other people, and we might say, that person's somebody because of this or because of this sort of reason. But I, I don't think that's what made Stephen so great, obviously. So what made Stephen so special? What made him so great? Well, you could see in the, in the text that, that we haven't read but in chapter 6 of verse 3, you have this problem in the church. There's all these widows who aren't being, their needs aren't being met. And so the apostles, they raise up people to help distribute needs amongst these widows so that they can keep teaching and, and preaching and devoting themselves to prayer and things like that. And so they say, well, let's raise up people. You see this in verse 4, they say, that are full of the spirit and wisdom. And then down in verse 5, it says, and they chose a man named Stephen. It says, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. See, Stephen, what made him so special, what made him a great man, was that he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. You see, Stephen wasn't an extraordinary guy in and of himself. That's what's actually amazing about Stephen. He was just an ordinary person, if you will. He was kind of just like you and me. Just an ordinary guy. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He was a brand new Christian who just recently got nominated to the widow distribution team at church. That's basically what he does, right? Just an, a normal person, an everyday kind of guy like, like you and, and me. Stephen was a lot like us, but he did extraordinary things. In verse eight, it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, what made Stephen just an ordinary guy and so great? He was filled up. He was filled with the Spirit. He had God, God the Holy Spirit, living in him. 
He was a new man. He was a new creation. I think we must stop here just for a moment and consider what our view of, of greatness is. I mean, what does that mean to be great in your eyes? And the reason this is so important because, is because I think what you think of as great is what you will aspire to become. What you think of as greatness, you will aspire towards that. Maybe it's something I've already listed, right, maybe. Or maybe it's something completely, something else, right? But more so, even if we get to the place in life where we would say, you know, I want God's view of greatness in my life. I, I want to be a humble, spirit-filled person like Stephen. Well, that's great, but let's just pause there just for a second and consider, why would you want to be that way? Why would you want to be that way? Why would you want to be filled up with God, the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's important to see in the entirety of this short account of Stephen that he isn't filled with God, the Holy Spirit, just so that he would feel great. It's not for that reason. Or it's not so that he would simply become a better person in life. That's not why. Or so that he could become what he's always wanted to become. That's not why that would even be a good thing or a desired thing. But our story of Stephen shows us that he is filled up with the Spirit of God for a purpose. And that purpose is so that that Spirit would be poured out. He is filled up to be poured out. See, there are th some things in life that are meant to be poured out. Right? Things in life are meant to be poured out. Or I could put it a different way. Things in life oftentimes are created with a purpose. So, for example, um, we love, as Dave, you already said it earlier, we love tried and true coffee, okay? Uh, if you guys didn't know this, they are so generous and they donate our coffee to you every week. So if you get a cup of coffee, you're getting $2 for free every week. So if you're frugal, that's amazing, right? Okay, they, they're incredible people, right? They donate coffee to us, they have great coffee. So can, let's just imagine this for a, sec for a second. Remember when they were opening up their new location in Southtown just not very long ago, okay? Let's just imagine you're like, oh, I can't wait, you know, I can't wait. And then the day came and they opened their doors and you're able to go in there. You know, they got the music playing, everything's set up. They have coffee brewing behind the counter and everything, okay? And you go up there and you're like, man, I would love a cup of coffee. Let's just say you went up to them and said that. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry, we're not, we don't serve coffee, right? We don't, we don't do that around here. That would be a little bit confusing, Correct. You would look at them, you're like, I don't understand. There's coffee, I could smell it. I could see it's being filled up in that urn right there. The purpose of you doing that is so I could give you money, you could pour it out into a cup, you give it to me, right? A coffee shop exists so that it could distribute coffee, correct? Like there is a purpose for filling up that urn and so that it would actually be poured out, you would hand over some money or something, and then it would be given to you. There's purpose to that. So in the same way, some things in life are meant to be poured out. In the same way, when God comes and he lives inside of you, when he takes up residence in your life, there's a purpose to that. And we see that purpose in the life of Stephen. His purpose is to live in you, not so that you would just be a holding tank, if you will, of living water, but that you could now become this conduit of living water. See, we are filled up to be poured out. So what does it mean to be poured out. Well, I think in the life of Stephen, we get a good picture of what that looks like. When an ordinary person who is filled up with the life of God, the Holy Spirit, when that person is poured out, 
we see what that looks like. So there's, there's a few things that I think we see here. A life that is poured out, well, one, they will speak both grace and truth into their culture. A life that is poured out will speak grace and truth into their culture. I think secondly, we'll see that a life that is poured out will embody the gospel. And a life that is poured out will give their life away because of the gospel. We see this beautifully in the life of Stephen. So just consider these verses here at the beginning. I won't be able to read this whole thing. Um, It says in verse eight again, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly investigated or instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And then we'll hear the response of Stephen in a minute. So we see in the life of Stephen that this man, this ordinary man, is filled up and and with being filled up in this power uh, that he is experiencing and this power that he is distributing that people are marveling at, he is speaking out against very powerful people and the way that they're viewing certain things. He all of a sudden was this courageous man who challenged his culture's thinking of the day. And so he gets put on trial, and this is probably in front of the very same people who just recently put Jesus on trial. He's standing in front of these sort of people, and he goes on trial. And if you remember, this is the third trial that we've come to in the book of Acts. Remember the first trial ended with a sort of shushing and a hand slapping. The second one ended with imprisonment and getting lashes. This one will start with a trial, and it will end with a death. So it's getting progressively worse here. And so they say to Stephen, you know, they say about Stephen that he is uh, speaking out against Moses and against God. They say he's speaking out against the temple. He's speaking out against the law. He's wanting to change the way things are around here. And, And they say, well, what do you say for yourself, basically? And Stephen goes ahead and he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And I'll just say this, because there's a lot that could be said about what he says. But one of his main themes is this whole idea about the temple. He wants to talk about where God lives and why he lives there. And so Stephen also wants to make it very known that Christianity and Judaism are not the same thing at all. That's, that's very obvious from our passage. People are getting very angry at him. And I think that's something really important to realize here just in a, in a day and age where uh, pluralism is kind of the mantra of our time, we, where people are trying to marry different religious beliefs with each other. Well, here in a story like Stephen, it's very clear that uh, Judaism and, and Jewish beliefs is very different than what's happening in the life of, of Jesus and Jesus' followers and what we would call Christianity. It's not the same thing at all. 
And so here, what, what he's speaking out against with the Jews is this. He's saying the Jews thought that they were very special because they had both the law of God and they had the temple. They said, Moses gave us the law. We have the temple, which means God lives with us. Therefore, we are a very special people. And the reason or what that would do to them is not cause them to now be compassionate towards other people, which is their call from God to actually be that, but this actually elevated them to a place of pride. This understanding of having the law in the temple made Jewish people look down on others and begin to distance themselves from other people. Rather than having them open up their hearts and their arms and their doors to other people who didn't have a relationship with the one true God. This is the problem. And so Stephen starts preaching this sermon. And honestly, when you're reading this sermon, it feels like he's sort of preaching to the choir because his sermon is, I don't know, it might appear to be kind of boring, all right? He's kind of just giving you a history lesson about Israel. And don't worry, I'm not gonna read it all, but he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go off from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. And he goes on and on and he talks about Abraham. And then he goes on and on and he talks about Joseph. And he goes and he talks about Moses. He's like, remember when Moses went to Sinai and he does all these different things? He talks about Joshua, he talks about David, he talks about Solomon. He's just narrating history for these people, okay? And I don't know about you, but at first glance, you know, you would one say, well, that decision in, in Acts chapter six to sort of free up the apostles to devote themselves to teaching, Stephen's really benefited from that because he seems to really know his Old Testament at this point. Okay? He's been sitting under this teaching. Now he knows some things. All right, but what's more important, I think, is it would almost seem, to some degree, that reading this, would, it would appear, if, if I were just imagining myself being in this moment, that if I were these people that I was you know, putting him on trial, and, and he's standing in front of me, and, and I'm a Jewish person, and he's narrating Israel's history to me, I would kind of imagine just standing there wanting to roll my eyes, if you will. Kind of like, yeah. Okay, Stephen, like we know this kind of stuff. Because he's telling them what they already know. In, in a real sense, he's narrating for them their history, like they understand this. But what's really interesting is that's not how they take it. Not at all. So that should tell you right away that Stephen is maybe not doing what you think he's doing. He's not just giving them a history lesson per se. Stephen is challenging something and he's using truthful storytelling about Israel's history to show them that God has always been about going after all people. That's what he's, he's showing them through their own history. Israel's calling from God was to live that, and they had missed it, and he's pointing this out to them. See, they thought they were special, and they failed to realize that they were sent. They thought they were filled, they were supposed to be filled up to be poured out, not filled up to be prideful. And so this is what he does. If you notice this, he uses the life of Abraham. Remember, he says Abraham was in Mesopotamia, then he went to Haran, and then down he says uh, he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, okay? And then down in verse six, it says, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. So he's saying, do you realize where Abraham came from? Do you remember who Abraham was? Remember where Abraham went? And then down in verse nine, he starts talking about Joseph. It says, oh, his brothers sold him into Egypt. So this guy was in Egypt. And verse 11 says, now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan. 
And then it goes down in verse uh, 16. It says, And they carried his body back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So he's, again, he's talking about all these geographical places. He's pointing all these different locations out. And then he goes to the life of Moses in verse 20. So at this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So he's like, remember Moses, that guy that you cherish, you received the law through? Yeah, he was uh, Egyptian in the way he was raised. Right? He, he was raised up in this. Down in verse 29, it refers to Moses again. It says, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And then he goes on, and he talks about this place in which Moses was, which is not in the geographical location exactly where they are now. And he says, do you remember what happened in that place? Remember he encountered God in the wilderness? And God says, take off your sandals, because the place you're standing is holy ground. He's showing them God showed up and said, this place is holy, and it wasn't in a temple. And then he goes on. He starts talking about Joshua, and then he gets down to the kicker in verse uh, you know, 45 with David. And I'll read this part. It says, So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, referring to a temple. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, referring to the temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. There he is again talking about the Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So do you see what happened? I try to go through that very quickly for you, for your sake, right? So he's showing Abraham is from certain places, going to certain places. He's a sojourner. He's showing the same in the life of Joseph and, and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and all these people, where they came from. These people were priding themselves on God is with us and that's elevating them to a place of pride. And he brings in this kicker at the end and he says, God does not dwell in houses made by hands. And you know that he's getting to his big point here because all of a sudden he turns and he uses strong language and he calls them stiff-necked people. Which I'm sure this week, if you get mad at somebody, you're probably not going to call them a stiff-necked person. But just know that in this day and age, that was not a nice thing to say. Okay? This would have jarred them to some degree. And he says, you guys pride yourself on being circumcised externally, but you're not set apart. You're not circumcised in your own heart. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. You're resisting what God is doing. And the reason is because you've resisted, you've rejected, you've actually killed the righteous one, Jesus, who was sent for you. See, God's purpose was not to make them special, but to make them sent. He was pouring his spirit not into a physical temple building, but into the lives of every person who through faith would receive Jesus as the Savior and the Lord of the world. Those who did that would have the Spirit poured into their lives like Stephen. God is not a nationalistic God. He is a God for all people. That's what Stephen's showing them. See, a life filled up and poured out for us 
looks like speaking grace and truth into our culture. This was not popular for what he was saying. And it's, see, that's the spirit that gives us courage to be about the things that God is about. And for Stephen, these people were missing what God was doing. This might not sound like an issue for you, but I wonder if we stayed here just for a second, if we realized maybe it might be. I mean, let's just broadly for a moment, just consider, just consider for a moment the refugee crisis in the world. I mean, the scope of today's refugee crisis is honestly just mind-boggling. It's unprecedented. It's affecting, it's, uh, recently I, I saw, it's affecting nearly 60 million people in the world. The uh, UN Refugee Agency said that one in every 113 people in our world today have been forcibly displaced from their homes in the world. 22 million of those are from Syria alone. These are people because of violence or war or whatever, oppression, are being driven out from their homeland. They, like Abraham, are going to be sojourners in a land. Okay. And each of these people, they have names. They have faces. They have lives. They have stories. These are people made in the image of God. I mean, I would hope that talking about refugees just for a moment and people who are sojourners in a new land, I mean, that, sh that should be people that we not only love, but that we actually would want to help. People that we would see God is for. And I assume living in a place like Corvallis and talking about refugees in this way will honestly probably get a lot of head nods. You know, people are like, yeah, totally. And that's great. I do know that there are other parts of our country where there wouldn't be many heads nodding. Okay? So I, I would hope that your heart would be open to people like refugees, for example, because you see that God is a God for all people, just like I hope your heart would be open to people who are trafficked, because you see that God is a God for all people, because you see that God is not a nationalistic God. But let me just take it a little bit further for a moment. Maybe where heads wouldn't nod as easily. I mean, I hope that you would see that God is not only for those kinds of people, that God is not only for you and the people that you like and like hanging out with, but also for that person or that group of people that you really have a hard time accepting. Or, I mean, just consider the people who actually are driving refugees from their homeland. Or consider the disgusting people who are trafficking humans. Would you think that God would be a God wanting to reach those people? Or what about the arrogant professor that you cannot stand? Or what about the difficult roommate? Or the friend who has betrayed you? Or that group of people whom you don't agree with their lifestyle or just those people that you don't want to associate with for whatever reason? What about those people? See, God isn't just for Israel. They weren't filled up to feel like they were better than everyone, but they were filled up to be poured out so that others could be brought into a right relationship with God. This was the area that Stephen spoke out boldly in grace and truth against the powerful leaders of his culture. And when we are filled up and when we are poured out, we will speak with grace and truth as well. It might not be in this specific area, although it might be, but when that happens, when that happens, we won't be silent at the expense of truth. 
We won't say in the name of grace that we won't speak out in truth. And we also won't speak out in truth with ignoring uh, the concept of love and grace. We won't be loud at the expense of those things either. So in his life that's poured out, Stephen speaks in grace and truth, but we also see more than that, that he is a man who is embodying the gospel, that, that a life that is poured out is a life that will embody the gospel. Look in verse 54, he says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So these people, they don't just put Stephen on trial. They've gotten to the point where they've heard enough. They've, they've heard enough. So much so that it's crazy. It, they, they're painted almost like little children, plugging their ears and grinding their teeth and charging at Stephen. Their immaturity, if you will, is coming out. And I, I read that, I'm like, wow, that's psycho. Right? Like just the imagery of that scene is pretty intense, right? It's pretty crazy. And so they run at Stephen and they begin to stone him. Not in the Oregonian sense of being stoned, but in the old school executionary way, okay? This is not a pleasant scene. And what happens to Stephen in this moment? What happens to Stephen? The heavens open up and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. And Stephen sees this vision of Jesus, and Jesus is standing. Jesus is standing. And that's really important because this is the only time in Scripture where Jesus is portrayed standing next to the right hand of the Father. He's always, always sitting. But here he is standing. And this is to show us that this is telling Stephen, and it's telling us that Jesus in this moment, if you will, is applauding the life of Stephen. Because standing in this culture was a sign of honor. It's a sign in a way to show honor. And so Jesus is pictured here standing, watching his humble follower, Stephen, who just spoke grace and truth into this culture, saying to him, well done, Stephen. Well done. That's the picture that Stephen sees. This is amazing because it says, again, in verse 55, that he is gazing into heaven. In verse 56, he says, I see this happening. And it's after he's gazing and it's after he's seeing these things, after Stephen sees this, it then empowers him to say what Jesus said when Jesus was dying on the cross. He says, Jesus said this, into your hands I commit my spirit. And here, in the life of Stephen, as they were stoning him, in verse 59, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He sees the resurrected Jesus, and now he's beginning to embody the life of Jesus. He's beginning to embody this gospel message. This sentence that he is stating is a sign of submission to God, that his life is in the hands of his maker. But then Stephen does the unthinkable, which I think 
clearly reveals to us that what he is saying, even in the words of accusing people of being stiff-necked people, that he is speaking truth in love, that he is speaking grace with truth because he not only just calls them stiff-necked people, but then in this moment, this unthinkable moment, he is asking God to have mercy on these people and to forgive them. He says with a loud voice, as if everyone needs to hear what he's about to say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, this is the exact same thing that Jesus does for us when he is hanging on the cross for us. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. In an act of extreme sacrifice, he is praying for his oppressors, for those who are wronging him. Stephen has been filled up and he is being poured out. He saw Jesus and this changed him. Seeing Jesus changed him. I think the reason so many of us do not embody the life of Jesus so often is because honestly, we're not gazing at the life of Jesus. We're not seeing the life of Jesus. One of my favorite things that my uh, three-year-old son says, it, it always happens in a moment like this. I'll be working on something. I'll be reading something. And he'll be saying to me across the room, Daddy, look at this, look at this, look at this. And in bad daddy moments, I'm just continuing to do what I'm doing. And uh, I'll say, yeah, buddy, what's up? And he'll be like, look at this, look at this. And I just keep doing what I'm doing, saying, yeah, I'm totally watching, I'm totally paying attention. And he'll finally say to me, in this little three-year-old broken English, he says, I know see your eyes, I know see your eyes. And every time I'm like, well, that's adorable, so I'll turn and look now at what it is that you're trying to say to me, right? But I think in the same sense, a lot of times, I know in my life, I would bet in your life, we would live our lives in such a way that we'd say, yeah, I'm following Jesus. I'm gazing at Jesus. I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. And Jesus is saying, I don't see your eyes. Because I think if our eyes are really staring at Jesus, that would result in us being a person who is embodying his life, who's embodying his gospel message. And the direct result of us not staring and gazing in the life of Jesus and not seeing the life of Jesus is gonna result in us not doing that. Because we are surrounded by so many other things. We are influenced by so many other things. When all I see is selfishness, it's very natural for me to embody selfishness. And now I'm embodying that for others to see. Right? When I see jealousy and I embody jealousy, now everyone else is seeing jealousy. We embody the things that we're around. In a matter of days, potentially, I could be having another child. Okay? And anyone who's ever had a child knows that you know when someone's had a child. Because all of a sudden, when you see them, they have a really different look about them. Right? Their eyes are glazed over. Jason knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Your eyes are glazed over, right? You don't really say things accurately. You're forgetting things all the time. You're misplacing things. It's very obvious, oh, you, you've just had a newborn, right? That, that's obvious because you are a person who is very much asleep in this moment. Right? We, we will, you will know by my embodying of, of certain things that I have had a newborn, we will embody our circumstances and the things that surround us so often. But if our eyes and our life is fixated upon Jesus, we will begin to embody his life. And that's what we see here in the life of Stephen. 
Stephen has been with Jesus. Stephen sees Jesus, and this causes him to embody the life of Jesus. See, this is so important because this takes the gospel from simply an intellectual idea for you to know, and it turns it in for something for you to experience. But more than that, it turns it into something for someone else to experience. I say this often, but this is, this is how this works. I can say to myself, God loves me, okay? I can say that, and I can even say I believe that, I know it, but there's something very different when, when you, Nathan, right? Like when you begin to love me with the kind of love that God has loved you with. And what is the love that God has loved us with? I, I, I say this often, but it, it's, it's important to keep saying See, the love in this world will say to you always, I love you if. I love you if you do this. I love you if you do that. If you don't do that, I will, I will withhold my love from you. But the love that comes from God says, I love you, period. And so when I live in that kind of love, and I begin to extend that kind of love to you, Trent, that changes everything. No longer is it just a, I know God loves me, but now you're experiencing God's love through the life of another person. And that's what's happening here in the life of Stephen. He is embodying the gospel. So a, a life that is poured out will speak grace and truth. A life poured out will embody the gospel. And lastly, we see that a life poured out will be willing to give their life away because of the gospel. Because what happens in the life of Stephen? It says, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Which is, this isn't a nice way of saying he was exhausted. This is a, a nice way of saying that he was done that he had finished the race, that he has passed to be with Jesus. And Saul approved of his execution, it says, in verse one of chapter eight, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, Stephen was filled up to be poured out and he experienced the good news of Jesus and he was so moved by what Christ had and was doing for him that he was willing to not seek to save his life, but instead he lost it for the sake of the gospel. That's what he did. The famous missionary in the mid-1900s, Jim, Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We see this in the life of Jim Elliot. We see it in the life of Stephen. But we'll look at what this results in. More persecution. That's what continues to happen. More scattering. But it's important to see in verse 1, it says, they were all scattered throughout. This is not trying to show you that people are running for their lives. That they're terrified. Because the word scattered here is a really important word. It's a word used to connotate the planting of seeds. So this persecution breaks out and people are being scattered, not because they're just terrified, running for their life, but these are people who God is planting seeds now throughout all these different parts of the world, seeds of the gospel in different people's lives and in different places that have yet to believe. I think a life like Stephen begs us to ask the question, what are you willing to give your life for? Sometimes a better question is, what are you willing to die for? Because whatever you're willing to die for is what's worth living for. 
there was a, a man named Adoniram Judson. And at age 25, which is the age of many of you in this room, he was sent out to be a missionary in Burma. And he was there for 40 years. But before he, he did this, he wrote this letter because he wanted to marry this girl, Anne. And so he wrote a letter, like a, a gentleman should, to her father, Mr. Hasseltine, asking to marry her. And he wrote this in like the year 1810, and, and I wrote his letter on the screen here, or typed it, writing it would be weird. I typed it on the screen here, and this is what he said. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to foreign and dangerous lands and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, which is heaven, and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound from her Savior for lost nations saved? That's quite the letter. If you're a dad, that doesn't sound very appealing, right? But he was a good dad. He was a godly dad, because Anne did go. And Anne did literally give her life away in Burma. But after she died, she left 7,000 Christians in a place where before she arrived, there were none. She joined the long ranks of Christians who said, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. See, Adoniram and Anne were filled up to be poured out. And so are we. Our greatest joys in life will come when our lives are poured out for the sake of others so that Jesus' life could be the one that is seen. Because Jesus poured out his life for us, we now are called to pour our lives out for others. You see, Jesus poured out his life in death on a cross so that we in his resurrection could be filled with the Holy Spirit and be poured out for others. See, life and joy and purpose and meaning are found in the life that is filled up with God and poured out for others. Anyone who knows me well knows that I, I love Corvallis, okay? A bunch of you guys heard that today. I love Corvallis. I have no desire to live anywhere else. I really don't. Uh, the, the, the only time I get a little wanderlust is when me and my wife watch OPB and we see those Viking River cruises, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm like, that sounds cool for like my life, okay? And I just sound old that I watch OPB, but whatever, okay? I, I have no plans to leave, all right, because I love it here. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. There are many others. And I've shared some of these with you before, um, but I was just doing some research uh, this last week about this. And if you didn't know, Corvallis has won many awards even in the last year, okay? We just won the number, fi number five best college town in America this last year. Go Beavs, okay? We were number three of the most fitness-friendly American cities in America. 
Go get it, right? We have the highest Peace Corps volunteers per capita, which is amazing because that says that people in Corvallis want to make a difference in the world. Corvallis ranked the fifth healthiest city in Oregon, which kind of feels like we got undershot there a little bit. I kind of just wonder if college eating, ramen eating, or sorry, ramen eating college guys, hopefully you're not college eating, kind of skewed the results on that, right? Kind of puzzling to me. Right, we just won this year gold level bicycle friendly community. That's right, okay. We have the most green buildings per capita. We have the most patents per capita. We were listed on Forbes as a top 10 city for new startups and tech. This year, we are listed as the number three most educated city in America. We have more than 52% of our populace who own a bachelor's degree or higher. And in this year, we were recognized as the most learned citizenry, which is a mouthful. More than 25% of our population has a graduate degree or higher. This year, Corvallis was ranked 38th in the top 100 best places to live in the country. You live in an amazing place. It's a beautiful place. I love Corvallis. But as we all know, Corvallis needs Jesus. It's not a perfect community. The nations are at our door. Do you realize Corvallis impacts the entire world? We really do. We have that sort of opportunity at our, at our doorstep. Sadly, Benton County, the last time it was a study was done, was listed as the least religious county in America. Do you know that when you walk the streets of Corvallis, if you were to talk to somebody, only 25% of people you'd go up to would even say they believe in anything. I mean, 75% of people who live in Corvallis, when you ask them what they believe, they would just say nothing. That's the county that we, we live in. Oregon is the least religious state in the West. Only a few states in the Northeast are ahead of us, and that's not a poll we want to be ahead in. That's correct, right? There's 25,000 students on the Oregon State campus, and only 2.5% at best are loosely affiliated with a church or a campus ministry. And we all know that just being a part of a church or campus ministry doesn't mean that you're a Christian. My question to you is this. What do you think it will take to see Corvallis transformed? What do you think it would take to see a city like what you see here in Jerusalem? What do you think it would take to see Corvallis transformed in a, in a similar way? To see Jesus' king, kingdom come and his will be done in Corvallis as it is in heaven. What do you think it would take? Well, I think it's going to take what God's plan has been from the very beginning of time. I think it's going to take what his plan has been from the beginning of the birth of the church about two millennia ago. God taking ordinary people like you and me. People like Stephen. Filled with the Spirit in order to be poured out. People filled with the Spirit speaking grace and truth, embodying the gospel and willing to give their lives away because the gospel is so good. See, we can love others the way that we see Stephen loving those who are killing him because God has loved us in the face of our rejection of him. We can pour our lives out for others because Jesus poured out his life for us 
And hear me, I would be selling you short tonight if I simply said to you, be like Stephen. I'd be selling you short. That would be missing the point because the only reason we can look at a man like Stephen and see that his life would be one that could be worth resembling is because Stephen was simply imitating Christ. He treasured Christ. See, we are after Christ because Jesus came after us. Guys, God is calling us to himself to fill us up so that our lives would be poured out, that the seeds of the gospel would scatter. They would be planted all over this world in different people's lives, in different places that have yet to believe. We are filled up to be poured out.